This is Lewis Lapham for Lapham's Quarterly, and this is The World in Time. Lead support for this podcast has been provided by Elizabeth Lizette Prince. Additional support was provided by James J. Jimmy Coleman, Jr. Speaking today with the historian Tracy Campbell about his new book, The Year of Peril, America in 1942. Your book, Tracy, is as timely as tomorrow's headlines. America in 2020 finds itself in crisis, political, social, and economic, as formidable as the one it confronted in 1942. Your book dwells on the abrupt changes in attitude and policy that overcame the immobilizing fear of the future and saved America's democracy from extinction. Begin with our fearful response to the surprise Japanese attack on Pearl Harbor on December 7th, 1942. I I think it's difficult for modern audiences to appreciate just how traumatic and fearful the nation felt in the days and weeks after Pearl Harbor. I guess the closest we've come to that is, of course, the 9-11 attacks. And what did we do? We thought, when will the next one occur? Well, naturally, throughout the United States in December of 41, January, February, March of 42, the notion was, when will the next series of attacks occur here? It wasn't really so much as would it happen as when, because we felt so vulnerable. We had been protected by these two large oceans for for ages, and so suddenly now we were now as vulnerable to attacks from the air as the British were. And so that's why I think we've got to kind of put ourselves back into that kind of situation and thinking about what a crisis really feels like. And a crisis, uh, I, we don't have any trouble now telling a modern audience what it feels like, but what crises do, they reveal, they expose, they illuminate the things that you hold dear, and they also allow you to kind of discharge the things that you don't. And that's why I felt those weeks and months after nineteen, after December of 41 would kind of reveal the United States in a way that um, nothing else does. You know, to paraphrase President Roosevelt, who said that um, in a time of crisis when the future is in balance, I, I, I'm just paraphrasing, he said, we come to understand what this nation is and what we owe to it. And what we owe to it was just about anything. And it affected virtually every American in one way or another, whether they volunteered or were drafted for the military, worked in a mili- uh, military plant, worked in a rubber scrap drive, buying a war bond, or when it came to rationing their gas or coffee or something else, everybody had something to do because they knew, at in essence, everything was on the line. And when you put a country at risk, when your survival is on the line, it's something that we hadn't faced really since the Civil War. And what was and what well, what was that in, in a short sense? I mean, our the nature of, of our capitalist economy, the the um, sharp division between black and white, the dysfunction of yeah. 
our, our liberal ideals? What what were the immediate changes? I mean, talk about, first of all, the Rose Bowl game is canceled on January 1, 1942, but but the Army is, is still uh, segregating blacks, and there's still a lot of virulent anti-black feeling throughout the United States. When I first started this book many years ago, I had a friend who said, you ought to call this When We Were Together. But history, when you start getting into the sources and start reading them and start feeling it, you realize that when you dig a little bit under the surface that what it reveals is something very different from maybe what the myth is. And you're absolutely right about race. It came to the surface in some horrifying ways throughout 1942. In January of 1942, coincidentally on the same day that the Germans met and decided on what the final solution would actually be in terms of policy, there was a horrific lynching in Sykeston, in Missouri, which happened throughout that year in one way or another. Um, I remember reading about this nurse, an army nurse, who had volunteered to go to Europe later on in, in the year, who was shopping in Montgomery, Alabama, got on a bus 13 years before Rosa Parks would get on that bus and was beaten savagely even though she had uh, the army uniform on. And that case didn't make very much in, in the way of headlines, but it was just one of those cases that just happened over and over again throughout the year, whether it's in Detroit, St. Louis. Uh, and you, you get a sense that the kind of stress that people were feeling in one way or another really kind of erupted in some, in some ways that were, were really kind of appalling. And in January of 1942, the war is going very badly for the West. I mean, uh, Germany is pretty well triumphant in Europe. The Japanese are acquiring sovereignty in the Pacific. Uh, and how well prepared were we? I mean, what was the size of the, say, the American Army and Air, Air Force at the beginning of 1942 as opposed to the German Army and Air Force? If you go back to when the war started in 1939 in Europe, the United States Army was smaller than Portugal's. And President Roosevelt had to walk a rather fine line between preparing the country for what he thought was probably going to happen and those who quite understandably had 1917 and 1918 in their minds of this dreadful trench warfare that just killed millions of people that you know you led to a stalemate and let's let's not get involved in something like that thousands of miles away so whether it was preparing the army the air forces in some kind of way we still when december 1941 comes along we're nowhere near as prepared as as we would think we we should be sometimes i think we read history backward we know how it's going to end. We feel rather certain. Uh, we've got such a larger industrial base. Surely the Japanese have made a profound mistake. But 
No one is saying that in early 1942. Our rubber supplies are cut off. It looks very doubtful whether we can become that arsenal of democracy unless we can find those kinds of sources. That's our immediate response. I mean, the Japanese attack on December 7th and Hitler declares war on the United States four days later. And then in January, FDR talks about building what you call the arsenal of freedom. In other words, comes up with extraordinary projections of expense yeah. to build whatever it takes. I mean, thousands of planes, thousands of... I mean, this is the great American war effort, is production. I think, you know, we know the December 8th speech pretty well, you know, a date that will live in infamy. It's a rather short speech. I think the speech he gave the next month, his State of the Union address, in which he laid out the details as was really the more remarkable speech. We're going to build 60,000 planes this year. Next year, 1943, 125,000 planes. We're going to spend $59 billion just this year on defense. Now, that figure, of course, isn't going to impress anybody in 2020, but in 1942, $59 billion in terms of federal spending was unheard of. It was astronomical. When he had talked about maybe a billion dollars for the defense effort just a few years before, there was an outrage that we would be spending that much. So this is kind of an unheard sum that is going to require kind of a national effort that's not just going to build, you know, when I talk about the arsenal of democracy, I think listeners today might think that's just to arm ourselves, but that's a, it's a global effort. It's to arm our British allies, our Russian allies, it's the arsenal of democracy, you're right. By May of 1952, I think we're spending something like a billion dollars a week on, on production. How do the American people, do they go grudgingly to this effort? Do they manage to overcome their, you know, individual prejudices and the idea of, you know, the, the fundamental belief in, in against government, big government. I mean, do we go willingly in, in, into a planned economy? Well, I guess the way to answer that is we have no other choice. If we just go about Spending and buying things as normal, uh, inflation could just get out of hand and become ruinous to a level so that the $59 billion I just mentioned might not have any meaning. Who knows what that would be? To me, the, the interesting thing, one of the things I tried to do was read, say, the New York Times and some other newspapers day by day, page by page as the year went through so I could kind of get a sense of what it felt like to be inside that year, not to stand back 80 years later and make rash judgments, but to see, as I would read the paper, as I'd read the periodicals, what are the things people are worried about. On one hand, folks went about their daily lives as best they could. They went to movies, they went to parks, they tried to, to live their lives. But on the other hand, there was this notion that everything that we live for and everything that it, we hold dear is on the line. That's why Roosevelt said this is a chance for us to see who we are and what we owe to 
something bigger than ourselves. And so I'm not sure it was, you know, of course there was some anger at rationing. There was some, uh, whether you lived in a rural area or an urban area, it it affected you differently. Some of the most (laughs) angry reactions I think people would understand is when we had to ration coffee to a certain extent. But whether it was that or paying more in taxes or being drafted like my father was at the time, you knew that this was something that was required of you, that it was something I, it's a word that I guess we don't use much these days. It was our duty to each other. Well, I I can tell you from my own experience, Tracy, that that your empathy with, with, with with that feeling matches my own experience. I was seven years old in 1942 in San Francisco. Uh, the, uh, the blackouts started the next day. Uh, my family had a shipping business and we had 32 ships on December 7th and on December 8th they'd all been requisitioned by the, by the government and the uh, 27 of them were sunk in the North Atlantic Convoy War in 1942. I mean, and, and so I, I, I had that as a seven-year-old. I mean, I had that feeling of of everybody doing his or her duty. And the uh, my grandfather was mayor of the city. Before that, he'd been on the War Labor Board. He was a Republican who, in the 30s, had uh, reviled Roosevelt's New Deal, but then found himself working for the war effort for Roosevelt in 1942. So, I mean, one of the things that is so good about this book is, is, at least in my mind, is it inaccurately captures the, the, uh, the mood and the response uh, on, the, on the part of the American citizenry. I mean, the sense that we were all of it in this together. I, I think one of the things that struck me early on was the notion that we could lose. And yeah. that, that came from government officials, military officials. I saw that theme popping up a lot. So this wasn't like... Uh, so many other military adventures in which we have seen over the last few decades, this was a sense we could easily lose this or, you know, God forbid, sit down with Hitler over a negotiating table, uh, which might have been the worst thing of all. And so you were talking about blackouts. I, I think it would be natural to assume there are blackouts in San Francisco, Seattle, Los Angeles, New York, but there were blackouts in St. Louis, there were blackouts in Chicago, the in the middle of the country. That gives you an idea of just how fearful people felt about what could possibly happen. Um, at, at the largest blackout of the country occurred in November in states like Montana and Utah and, and in areas that I guess we would think would never be hit by, uh, by the enemy. And of course, later on, they weren't. But when you get yourself inside the year and feel that, to me, Lewis, there was a tension that was so visible, I could feel it as I'm reading these sources, whether it's newspapers or records in the FDR library or anywhere else, 
that I thought the is there a way I can try and relate that tension, that anxiety to the reader? And that's why instead of doing it thematically and saying a chapter on the military, a chapter on the economy, a chapter on rationing, I wanted to try and take you through the year as I was feeling it, as people felt it, to try and relive that tension. Now, when I finished the book in, in November, I thought, who is going to be interested in this, this kind of a crisis where stores are telling people not to buy too much. And you know, to have this book come out in the middle of this particular crisis now was almost eerie, but as we know, this won't be the last one. And so it helps us to see what works and what we need to do. And that's why I found this book to be really kind of an obsession that I love doing from the beginning to the end. Well, I mean, you point out, for example, that on January 19, 1942, a single German U-boat sank eight ships in New York Harbor in the space of 12 hours. And, the, you know, the U-boats were off the whole East Coast. And they spotting the silhouettes of American merchant shipping against the bright skyline of the cities all the way from Maine to Miami. And one of the U-boat captains died maybe two years ago, if I have my dates right. And I remember reading his obit thinking, this is not ancient history. This this guy was still around, and he remembered what it looked like to see those silhouettes. You know, we can't win the war if we can't win the war in the Atlantic. And we are so far behind the eight ball in the Atlantic. That's why that tension of, man, we could lose this war, or this is much worse than people think was alive and well on people's minds throughout 1942, in which there's not much happening on the military front. So month by month, the frustration mounts, the anxiety mounts, anger toward you know administration officials or any other place. It's November before we really can launch an offensive in North Africa. So that's almost a year of nothing really quite happening, at least on the visible front. Of course, it's there's tremendous action behind the scenes, and Roosevelt keeps hoping we can get people out there, we can have an offensive before uh, the November elections, the off-year elections. And so all of these tensions are there that I, I guess we can now better understand, certainly since March of 2020, of how so many things can just be happening at once, and it's hard to get your hand around them. And that was part of the real struggle with this book. Well, talk about you, you. One of the themes that runs through the book is the sort of reconciliation uh, between capitalism and democracy. I mean, they they have different beasts in view. On the, for example, you say there's a massive redistribution of wealth, and in other words, the incomes of the banks and the financial sectors go down. And then on the other end, you have a, a kind of new system of industrial, uh, in an industrial workplace. Talk about the Jack N. Heinz plant. Uh, you, know, you know, I mean, that's an ex- example of a new attitude that we're in it together yeah i I gotta tell you one of my 
there's just some there's just it's a lot of fun to be a historian Lewis when you get a chance to go to this little library in Bedford Ohio that wasn't even open on a Saturday but they opened it for me there's it's like an old country store and they have these records in the back and they bring it out and it's the records of the what was it called Jayco the Jack and Heinz company which was like so many other companies throughout the country that got these huge government contracts to build something and build it now. And what was interesting was the experiment. This is in 1942. So you have this company right outside Cleveland making equipment for airplanes, making tons of money from the federal government. And the benefits they gave workers just sounds almost utopian. You know, they they had... Um, masseuses inside so that if your muscles were tired you could get a, a, a massage you could all your meals were free uh, employees could have two weeks paid vacation in florida down the road uh, vitamins uh, classical music pumped in i could go on and on but the other side was that for employees they had to work seven days a week 12 hours a day and the remarkable thing was that there was no absenteeism in February and March of 42. Uh, they could have free health care. They had free dental care. Uh, there were operating rooms within the plant. And it was like so many other plants there. You know, on the West Coast, you know, you had the, the shipyards of Henry Kaiser, who in one way or another started the first HMO. And that's what war does. It, the, the emergency, the immediate feeling of, of this kind of wipes the slate clean on so many fronts. What do we do to keep workers here? We've got to keep them healthy. We've got to keep them fed. We've got to make sure that they have everything they need in order to keep this production miracle happening. To me, I thought the, the whole production issue was akin really to President Kennedy's challenge to get somebody on the moon by the end of the decade. Well, in 1942, it was, can we get to 60,000 planes? Will we get to 125,000 next year? How are we doing per month? How are we doing per, you know, per quarter? Uh, but the relationship between capitalism and war was an uneasy one. And I think that was part of the, of the genius, if you will, of FDR and so many others to try and get these two things to work at the same time. And remarkably, they did in ways that um, I'm not sure we really appreciate here in 2020. No, but I, if I dare say so, I mean, this is something we can learn if, we, if we're going to come out of the current our current crisis. I think we have to make a similar uh agreement between capitalism and democracy. I mean, I, I think that's, that's the great lesson, I think, that is taught in, in, in your book. And it, it shows us how it can be done. And I think something like that needs to be done in the, in the now as, a, as well as the then. <laughs> the, I mean, talk about the, uh, well, first of all, Women come into the in, into the war production uh, factories, um, but still, you have labor strikes. I think something like two thousand of them, you say, in, in nineteen forty-two, and the they're still virulent uh, 
anti-black um, uh, sentiment. I mean, it's not just the lynching in Missouri. I mean, there are other lynchings in the South. And the, uh, I mean, there are people who, re- you know, refuse to be in the same room with, with the, a bl- black army officer. I mean, I mean, there's that kind of attitude in among some of the Southern uh, Democrats in, in Congress. Talk about the, you know, First of all, who was General Max? That's one of your chapter titles. Talk about General Max and then talk about Hoover's phrase, these fascist economic measures. Okay. First of all, General, if, if any of your listeners are trying to figure out what general in the Army was named Max, it, it's, it was a neat phrase in April of 1942 for this government effort to keep the economy going to keep the production effort going, but also to keep inflation under check. So it was a a program called General Maximum Regulation, but it was euphemistically called General Max, led by a remarkable person who is almost invisible these days, Leon Henderson, who essentially controlled great parts of the American economy, whether it's wages, which you mentioned strikes. I mean, it was frustrating to keep working and working, working, not have your wages go up, but they couldn't. Rents couldn't go up. Prices couldn't go up. They would be set by, for lack of a better word, bureaucrats in centralized Washington offices, usually led by Leon Henderson. And I think my my favorite office was something called the Office of uh, Biscuit, the bits, the Biscuit and Pretzel Subcommittee of the Office of of, of, of Baking Production, or something like that, where. Even biscuits and pretzels on street corners had to be, the prices had to be set. Um, you mentioned Hoover, and I, we're talking about former President Herbert Hoover, who said this really remarkable thing in the spring of 1942. I mean, he, he and Roosevelt reviled each other, but he said, because of what we're under here, we need to give President Roosevelt dictatorial economic control over this country until the war is over. He used the phrase dictator. And he said, I know these may be, quote-unquote, fascist economic measures, what we're seeing, but it's the price we're going to have to pay to have this kind of production effort to meet the efforts of war, but also to do it in a way that everyone will be paying a price in one way or another. I think that's in the context, Lewis, of what had happened in World War One. notion that war, you know, munitions had made money at the expense of other people. And so there was this general phrase of shared sacrifice that nobody would be able to get out of what we were facing in World War II without helping or sacrificing, giving up something, which was at the, na- the, the, the whole centerpiece of what democracy was about. And there's also surprisingly little uh, black market profiteering. There was some, and and part of the effort with the OPA, the Office of Price Administration, was to have people go around and make sure that no one was taking advantage of it. How would you regulate this? Of course, there were differences, but in general, people regulated themselves because they knew this is what we had to do in order to to keep the country alive. You know, we call it World War II. 
in early 1942, we didn't have a name for it. And so Roosevelt said, I think we ought to call it the survival war. We don't use that term anymore, but that's what was on the line was just surviving. And so when you have a country with this, with so much at stake, with so much on the line, you see what people are willing to do and able to do. And as long as it's shared, as long as no one feels that someone else is taking advantage of someone else, uh, it could work. And that's really the story of 1942 to me was the effort to save democracy by having not only clear, decisive leadership, but also having a citizenry where you felt it as a child. Uh, my mother-in-law felt it as a child. My father, who was 20 years old at the time, was drafted. He felt it that we all had a part to, to play in, in each other's survival. Yes, I mean, I remember collecting uh, scrap rubber and, and uh, becoming a Boy Scout and, and doing oh. everything I could to, you know. Okay, help. can I say something about the scrap rubber program? That, that's a perfect example. Uh, President Roosevelt went on radio because there was this crisis about rubber. And he said, I want to talk about rubber, and I mean rubber. And for like seven minutes, he used the phrase over and over again. He said, what I want you to do is go into your closets, go into your basements, go around the neighborhood, find old tires and hoses, and take it to what he called a filling station. And you would be compensated for a penny a pound. And do it for the next two weeks so we can see what we have. And so children all across the country participated in these rubber drives. They felt like they... They could play a role in this, yeah. Yeah, no, I, I was one of them. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> All right, talk about talk about the uh, the anti inflation bill, the Stabilization Act of October. One of the things I have done for say my students and for some audiences, I put up the tax tables that were presented by. Treasury Secretary Morgenthau, and I, I usually hear gasps in the room when they look at the top rate, which is 88%. It would actually reach 91 uh, a couple years later. And even more than that, President Roosevelt felt that it was important that anyone who made after taxes had an income of $25,000, which is roughly somewhere between, say, 380 and 400 today that they ought to pay 100% above that, that no one should make too much money, and he called it a super tax. And it was interesting to look at the the language and the phraseology he would use, because he would say, I, I know I don't have to ask people about this, because I know you'll be willing to give it, you know, in a phrase that I don't think we'd, we'd heard since, you know, King George III might have used it. But... There was this sense, and it was quite popular at the time, that a super tax of taxing the ultra, the ultra level, uh, wealthy to a degree so that they would have to pay everything above a certain level was a politically popular thing. Now, it never passed. It didn't get through. But you had mentioned the Stabilization Act. Uh, the economy is, like I said, one of those long-running things throughout 1942 that if we can't stabilize it and get it under control, keep inflation in check, 
then all else might just fail. And so he turned to Jimmy Burns of South Carolina to help establish the Office of Economic Stabilization. Burns was on the Supreme Court at the time. I also think Leon Henderson's role, who was called the most hated man in America throughout the year, kind of exemplifies kind of the rise and fall of the sense of government control that he became really persona non grata by the end of the year. He he had to leave Washington and in nineteen early nineteen forty two he was one of the most powerful people maybe ever to have not been elected to anything. But after the somewhat disastrous November elections, he was kind of the sacrificial lamb to to be offered to not just Republicans but to Democrats in, in Congress who were angry with him. Galbraith regarded him as the greatest hero of, yes. of, the, of 1942. Yeah, John Kenneth Galbraith. And uh, that's what struck me is that this individual who was such a part of everyone's life, whether they knew it or not, in this year of crisis, kind of becomes invisible. There's not a book about him. There's not even so much as really an article besides Wikipedia. And he becomes kind of forgotten. But to me, Leon Henderson's one of those crucial figures who played such an instrumental role in keeping inflation in check, which, you know, if we'd have said in the beginning of 1942, we're going to spend this amount of money. Uh, The New York Times reported in October, by the way, if you look at all the outstanding contracts we have out there, the actual figure is more like $203 billion, which in 1942 is an astronomical amount of money. I mean, it is today, but in 1942, it's, it's like it's, just, it's, it's hard to get one's hands around that. To keep inflation in check under all of these things is truly, I think, one of the real themes of 1942. Was there any easing? By the end of 1942, uh, the, the war, which was all losses in the first six months, but the, the war has begun to take a turn in the favor of the Allies. I mean, the Battle of Midway in May stops the Japanese uh, encroachment in the Pacific. And then the in November, the American invasion of North Africa, it begins to push back the Rommel and, and the, the German control of the Suez Canal. So there's some light on the military horizon at the end of 1942. And people are beginning to believe that we have a chance to win the war. Right. The, the, the immediate fear, the immediate almost panic. I mean, uh, there was a poll taken in early 42 in which almost a third of Americans were ready to negotiate an end to this with Hitler, whatever it took, because of how daunting it seemed. By the end of the year, as Roosevelt's planning to go to Casablanca, uh, yes, you're right. There, it's, not, it's certainly not a sense that, well, we're out of this. It's, we can see victory in sight. You know, 1943 is going to be a brutal, bloody year. Yeah. But at least we've got things in shape. We didn't quite build 60,000 planes. We built around 48,000. 
So we fell short, but still the whole notion of building 48,000 warplanes, which would then, by 1945, we built almost 300,000. It's just an astonishing production effort, not just planes, tanks. I mean, if you uh, anti-aircraft weapons, we become that arsenal of democracy. It's hard to think that we're going to get there in January and February, but by December, the outlines are obviously there because of this tremendous effort, almost on an hourly, daily basis, by so many people. Has there been any easing or coming together of the racial division, or does that st- is that still yet to come? It's not nowhere close to that. In November... The same month that we first uh, see those troops land in North Africa, that same month, you would think that government's going to work. We have a filibuster in which the Southern Bloc, those uh, senators from about eight Southern states, were ready to just bring everything to a halt because what was on their desk was a, a bill to end the poll tax. The whole point of the poll tax was to keep people from voting, poor people and people of color. And on the floor of the Senate, people like Mississippi's Wall Doxy uh, made it clear that this is about what he called Anglo-Saxon supremacy. And we will keep this no matter what the case may be. They were able to win that filibuster. The poll tax was not touched. And I think of all the quotes that just kind of struck me throughout my research, it was won by Mississippi's Theodore Bilbo, and I'm paraphrasing, but he was so proud of the work that he had done in keeping the poll tax bill killed and in keeping uh, voting rights limited to whites. Then he said, what I've done for the preservation of this country is just as valuable as the boys dying on Guadalcanal. Um, in so many cases throughout this book, Lewis, all I had to do was just find it and get out of the source's way to let them tell the story themselves. I know. That's why it's such a good book. I mean, that's 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 the way history ought to be written, at least that's in, in, in my view. Okay. At the end, you, you say at the, in December 1942, America – is is transformed, and you 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 define democracy as an act of faith, and that yeah. faith has been uh, retained, and and uh, actually reinforced, even though it has acquired a planned economy uh, dimension. What I meant by democracy is essentially an act of faith. At the end of the day, we don't have a military despot or a monarch who apparently rules by divine will. We, we're doing this ourselves, and we have to depend on each other. We have to have faith in each other. If we lose an election, we have to have faith that, well, there will be another day, but that sooner or later there has to be some kind of, of, of maturity power in this and that, that we're going to have to proceed. Uh, and I think we do understand what is on the line. There's this incredible search engine that I, it came out of nowhere 
online called Ingram Viewer, and it's run by Google, I think, that can look through all of the written record going back through the 1700s and measure with incredible precision the frequency with which a word has, or a term, or a name has been used over the last few hundred years. And when I put in democracy, I saw this spike happen on the graph, and I, as I was able to go in closer, I saw that that word appeared more in at least our written language in 1942 than in any year since the 1700s, including all the way through 9-11, because people, and, and I, I wanted to bring in children into this, because 40 million Americans at this time were under the age of 16, how often they used that term, how often they felt like everything was on the line. So, we have been transformed. We know that the worst of the war is yet to come, but at least the foundation is there to win it. But also the fissures and the cracks, whether it's white supremacy or really astonishing levels of anti-Semitism that keep popping up. Um, one of the things I wasn't expecting to do with this book was to write about things that did not happen. But when I came across this thing called the War Rumor Project uh, in Washington, in which I saw the, the collection of so much false information that was spreading throughout the country in an effort to try and get out in front of it to fight it off, I could read then from city by city, state by state, what people were telling barbers and taxi drivers and bartenders what they really thought. The largest single category throughout 1942, according to the Office of War Information, was called hate, the hate rumors, toward various people. But this isn't toward our enemies. It wasn't toward people in the Pacific or Europe. It was toward ourselves. So there is that mixed bag there that makes history complicated, that makes it... Well, that's what, we, that's what we've got going on today on Twitter. Yeah, it's hard to get on Google today and not see fact versus fiction, which was an effort that the government and various agencies tried to do. But the more they realized that we expose these rumors, these false information, pieces of information, the more that they proliferate. And so there was this internal division. How do we get hold of what people are telling one another? The way we communicated in 1942 is nowhere near what we do today. I can't imagine what it would have been like had we had Twitter and the bots that are being used to spread this in such an easy way. We've become kind of easy targets for this. But all of these, I think, I think added up to uh, a portrait of a country that was at risk, was fighting for its survival. Some of its worst qualities came to the surface and some of its best qualities, some things that change forever, whether it was the GI Bill or this kind of permanent sense that we're not going to be caught unaware again, and also opportunities for expanding health care, education, um, and doing things like that. It, and so for me, those years of crisis in 1942 was just, to me, it was like finding King Tut's tomb as a historian. I just loved it. But it also, I, I felt throughout the whole time, was relevant. I just didn't know it would become this relevant. Well, it is this relevant, and it's a grand book, Tracy. And Thank you. Thank you for speaking with us today. Tracy Campbell, 
historians, the year of peril, America in 1942. Lapham's Quarterly brings voices from the past up to the microphone of the present. Save more than 30% off the cover price and subscribe today for only $49. Visit laphamsquarterly.org slash podcast for more details.